Turn again this morning to 1 Kings and chapter 6 and this chapter in which we read of Solomon's building of the temple. As we read before, in verse 37, it says, In the fourth year was the foundation of the house of the Lord laid in the month Ziph, and in the eleventh year in the month Bull, which is the eighth month, was the house finished throughout all the parts thereof and according to all the fashion of it. So was he seven years in building it. So was he seven years in building it. In this chapter we read of all the majestic things that Solomon built in this temple, the way it was built, the way it was built out of stones which were hewn elsewhere and brought up into the place where they were laid so that there was no tool, there was no hammer, there was no sound of an axe or iron heard in the building of the house. All was prepared so that it was brought together in silence. And the wood, the cedar, was carefully carved and brought and laid in place. We read of the exact measurements of the house and the arrangement of the house, the arrangement of the chambers round about. We read of how the Holy of Holies, the oracle, and the doors of this are built. We read of the cherubims and the flowers and the palm trees and the overlaying of the gold, the great glory and honour which is given unto God in the building of this house, which was built as it were in figure, in perfection, within seven years. Though this house was but a building upon the earth, though it would one day be brought to the ground and destroyed, though it was but a type and a figure, it was a figure of that which is true, which is everlasting. It is a figure of that eternal temple of God in Christ, which lasts forever. And so rightly so, Solomon was seven years in building it. A picture of the perfection which was built. But when we read of Christ in the Gospels and his reference to himself as the temple of God, when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it again, And the Pharisees heard him and scoffed at his claim, not knowing that he spake of the temple of his own body. When we read of them, their response is, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? Forty and six years. Well, why the difference? when it says here that Solomon built the temple in seven years. Well, this temple that Solomon built, the first temple, was brought into ruin by the Babylonians when Israel was taken up into captivity. And when they were brought out of captivity, we read elsewhere in Ezra and Nehemiah of how this temple began to be rebuilt. 
And in the time in which Christ came to the Jews, they were still working on this temple. There was a second temple built. It was a rebuilt temple. And after so many years of rebuilding, it never quite captured the glory of the first temple that Solomon built. But this temple that they rebuilt, which took them so long, demonstrates the contrast between that which God builds and that which man builds. When Solomon built the temple, he built it at the command of God. When God would have it built, in the manner in which God would have it built. His father David could not build it. But God promised that his son would. And although Solomon, an earthly king, was the man that oversaw the building of this house, it is in figure the Lord's house. The king built this house. The king of kings built his house in perfection in seven years. But when men came to build the house of God, when it was rebuilt, it took them decades. It took them decades. And that temple into which Christ entered when he was upon earth, in which the scribes and the Pharisees sat, over which they were so protective, of which they were so proud and so zealous in their keeping of the outward form of the law of God in the midst, that which they had outwardly was nothing compared to the glory of Solomon's temple built in seven years and nothing compared to that which Solomon's temple is a picture of. In this, the first temple and the second temple, we see in many respects the contrast between God's work, God's work of grace and the work of man in religion. God's work is perfect. It's performed in his time, in his manner, at the right hour, in the right way, by grace, in perfection. What he chooses to do comes to pass. It came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month Ziph, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. What God purposes to do comes to pass. When God chooses to send his gospel to a fallen and a lost sinner who is far off, lost in their sin, a rebel against God, blind in the darkness, hating God, having no thought for God, when God chooses to send his gospel unto them, there is nothing that will stop it. When he chooses by his spirit to speak his word into their heart, no matter what they may do to flee, no matter what they may do to resist, 
no matter how disinterested they may be, no matter how far off they may be, no matter how lost and rebellious they may be, he will draw them and break them and bring them down low before him and cause them to cry out, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. When he chooses to wash a sinner in the blood of his Son, they will be washed. When he chooses to put faith into an unbelieving and a disinterested heart, that sinner will believe. When God chooses to pour his grace upon us, we are brought to faith in his Son. God saves. Salvation is of the Lord and none can stay it, none can prevent it. And when God chooses to build his temple and bring a lost sinner in as a stone to be laid in his temple and built up into this glorious place in which God dwells in the midst of his people, it comes to pass. So he was seven years in building it. God's grace is invincible, it's irresistible. It comes to pass, it accomplishes what God would have it do. God will save. And nothing that man can do can stop it. But in contrast, when men rebuilt the temple, in their strength, it took them decades. And the end result, when Christ came into this world and came under his own and came unto this religious people, the Jews, and walked amongst the scribes and the Pharisees and entered into their temple, what did he find there? But death, but blindness, but darkness. They had all the outward form. They had a building on the earth. They had a holy of holies in the midst. They had an altar. They had their sacrifices. They had their priesthood. And they didn't know the God who commanded it when he came into their presence. When the very Son of God when the very God whom they professed to worship, of which that temple in which they dwelt was a picture, when the very sacrifice came into their midst, when the great high priest of which their priest was a picture walked amongst them, they did not recognise him. They did not see him. Their religion had got them nowhere. They were in darkness. They were blind. And all their building, all their works in religion had simply darkened their understanding. Far from bringing them closer to the truth, it had led them away from it. Oh, how the works of man, the wisdom of man, the will of man, in the things of God, brings him nowhere. 
decades they'd been in building this temple. And they did not recognise their God and Saviour when God came in the person of Jesus Christ and stood in their very midst. Three days he would rebuild his temple. How they mocked, how they scoffed. Forty and six years was this temple in building and wilt thou rear it up in three days? They could not see. They did not know. Oh, what a difference between faith and works. What a contrast with Anna and Simeon, who when the babe Christ was brought into the temple, saw him for whom they had waited. These who were given faith to see in the scriptures the promises to wait for the coming of Christ and to see him and rejoice at him in his coming. He had seen their salvation. He'd come into the temple where they waited for him. But all around there were those, those builders, those builders in religion, those workmen in religion, those who were so proud of their understanding, so proud of their knowledge, so proud of their wisdom, so proud of their righteousness. And they did not recognise him. And in the end, they tried to stone him. They cast his words in his teeth. They rejected his every saying. They depicted him as a blasphemer. They cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And they put him to death. And in so doing, unwittingly, the sacrifice was nailed to a tree, was offered up, his blood was shed, the temple would be built and salvation would be wrought. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. What is your reaction to Christ when he comes your way? Do you see in him the king who builds a temple in seven years in perfection? The saviour who lays down his life and rises again on the third day. Do you see in him your God and your saviour? Or do you say away with this man? I will not have him to reign over me. The temple that Solomon built in depicting Christ was built in perfection in just the manner and in just the way that God would have it built. The house which King Solomon built for the Lord, the length thereof was threescore cubits, and the breadth thereof twenty cubits, and the height thereof thirty cubits. And the porch before the temple of the house, twenty cubits was the length thereof according to the breadth of the house, and ten cubits was the breadth thereof before the house. And for the house... He made windows of narrow 
lights. He built it. The width, the length, the height that God would have him build it. There is not one word in this chapter which is just in passing. There is not one measurement which is without meaning. There is not one detail which is mentioned which does not have a purpose. Consider some of what we see here. What a house he made windows of narrow lights. Why does the Lord single the windows out? When men consider the word of God, they read these things and all they see is the practical details. They'll look at these windows and they'll say he built narrow windows to keep out the elements so that birds would not be flying in, etc. All they can see is a practical reason for building narrow windows. But if that's the reason why the Spirit of God mentions them, that could be said of so many other things. Why mention the windows when that's just what you would do? Now there's more to these narrow windows than just the practical need for them. These windows of narrow lights would lead to the sunlight shining in through shafts in particular places and in particular ways. The temple of God was not made for all. It was built in Zion, built for God's people to come unto their God and to worship him. It was built for a particular, a chosen and elect people. There were those who were called to come to this temple to bring their sacrifices. They were to come in a particular way and in a particular manner at a particular time. They could not just enter at any time in any way. The doors were not wide open. There were not great big broad doors and huge windows for the whole world to come into this place. This was the temple of God where he would meet with his people. There was in the midst of the temple the Holy of Holies into which only the high priest could enter at a particular time, taking with him blood, which he would sprinkle on the ground and on the mercy seat. Only one man could enter into that place. Only one could pass through the veil. These narrow windows, windows of narrow lights, are a picture of the Sovereign, electing grace of God, in which his gospel and the light of his gospel shines into the hearts of his chosen, elect people. It is not for all, but for those whom God has chosen to save.
They are narrow. They're not easy to enter through. Only so much light could shine through these windows. They're particular. And they remind us of a straight gate and a narrow way. As Christ said in Matthew 7, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Salvation's not for all. And indeed, left to ourselves, there is none that seeks it. We are all by nature on a broad way that leadeth to destruction. We've gone through a very wide gate. We walk with a great company on a very broad way. And that way leads to death. Left to ourselves, that's the way we walk. Except God come into our pathway as he came into Saul's pathway on the way to Damascus, except he come into our pathway and enter into our consciousness, except he stand before us and turn us, we would never find ourselves entering through a straight gate on a narrow way. We would never enter spiritually this temple. And even if we were brought into this temple, there's only one man that can enter into the Holy of Holies under the mercy seat on our behalf to offer up blood from a sacrifice to appease the wrath of God against our sins. There's only one who can deliver us from the wrath of God. Which path are you on? Has light shone through a narrow window into your heart? Has God shone some light upon you and in you to show you what you are? And to show you your need of a saviour to wash your sins away. Oh, how we need God to open a window within. Oh, how we need some light to shine in the darkness and the depravity of our hearts. Because left to ourselves, we could not care less. We're blind. And no matter how much man may reason with us, no matter how much we may know in a practical sense that this world is sick with sin, that this world is full of misery, that there are multitudes around us who go to the grave with nothing. No matter how wretched our lives may be, no matter how much trouble may come upon us, by nature we still just 
head along on this broad way. Having no care and concern for our soul and no care and concern for God. Nothing seems to shake our foolish minds out of this foolish idea that we will somehow live forever, that our life will just carry on going. And we have no concern for what is next, no concern for eternity before us. Unless God come in his gospel and shine a light in and shows us what we are and shows us his son Christ and says, I've given my son for sinners like you. He laid down his life that you might not die but live. As he shone the light of the gospel your way. Is that light just shining outside? Is the sunlight outside and there you are in darkness? Or is there a narrow window opened? And light shining in. Has he begun to speak unto your soul and to say unto you, Sinner, turn unto me. Wash your sins in my blood. Yes, Solomon built windows of narrow lights. There was light within this temple. There was glory within this temple. But it was particular. And it was for a particular people whom God would choose and gather and lead in. And that people would be brought to that temple and they would have to wait while a priest on a given day took a sacrifice offered on their behalf and went in to a place that they could not see where there were two cherubims whose wings met across the mercy seat upon which he would sprinkle blood and God's mercy would extend to those for whom that blood was offered. Has one gone into the Holy of Holies for you? Has a priest gone for you, taking with him blood unto the two cherubims, unto the mercy seat? Has he sprinkled blood for you to wash away your sins? As we read further in this chapter of these cherubims, and within the oracle he made two cherubims of olive tree, each ten cubits high. And five cubits was the one wing of the cherub, and five cubits the other wing of the cherub. From the uttermost part of the one wing unto the uttermost part of the other were ten cubits. And the other cherub was ten cubits. Both the cherubims were of one measure and one size. The height of the one cherub was ten cubits, and so was it of the other cherub. And he set the cherubims within the inner house and they stretched forth the wings of the cherubims so that the wing of the one touched the one wall and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall and their wings touched one another in the midst of the house and he overlaid the cherubims with gold 
And he carved all the walls of the house round about with carved figures of cherubims and palm trees and open flowers within and without. And the floor of the house he overlaid with gold within and without. What a place this was. And what a picture these cherubims are. Of those cherubims that guard the way to glory that guard the way to life, that guard the way to the tree of life. We read of the cherubims over the mercy seat. We read of the cherubims here. And they remind us of those cherubims in Eden. When man sinned, when sin entered this world and death by sin, and Adam and Eve were driven out of Eden, they were driven out of the garden, They were driven away from the tree of life. They had taken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They'd sought to know how what is right and wrong and to strive to live accordingly. They'd gone to the law in order to justify themselves in figure. They'd gone to produce their own righteousness, their own works. They turned from Christ, they turned from God and life alone in him. And they turned to their own wisdom, their own knowledge of good and evil. They took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and ate thereof. And in the day that they ate thereof, they died. So God drove them out of the Garden of Eden. They never went to the tree of life. Which if if they'd eaten of, they'd have lived forever. They never went to Christ. They went to the law. They turned to their works. They turned to their own wisdom, their own understanding, their own will. As we all have. And God drove out the man. And he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims. And a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. This is what these cherubims depict. Two cherubims over the mercy seat in the oracle of God, in the holy of holies. They guard the way of the tree of life. You cannot get here without passing this flaming sword which turned every way, without coming before these two cherubims. They kept the way of the tree of life. And yet this is where Adam, Eve should have gone. This is where they could have gone if they hadn't turned from God and his word. If they hadn't gone against his word and taken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if they hadn't turned to their own understanding, if they hadn't turned to their own wisdom, if they hadn't turned to their own works, if they hadn't turned to their own righteousness, if they hadn't turned to the law, which slew them and killed them, they could have come to the tree of life. But now having sinned, death having entered, The way to the tree of life is barred. And this is depicted in figure in that every year 
the high priest would enter into this place, taking blood and come to the mercy seat, over which were two cherubims, and offer for the people. Only one person could bring them back. Only one person could bring them life. Only one person could bring them salvation. Only one person could forgive their sins. Only one person could come to this tree of life and bring them salvation that cannot be taken away. They needed somebody to enter in for them. They needed somebody to come unto the cherubims. They needed somebody to come unto the tree of life, as it were. They needed a priest and a sacrifice, all of which are a picture, of course, of Jesus Christ, who came into the darkness of this world, who came to where his people were, driven out of the Garden of Eden, lost in the darkness, outside of where the tree of life is, lost in the darkness. He came unto them. He came to where they were. And he offered himself. He came as their priest. And he went to the cross as their great high priest. And he took a sacrifice which was himself. And the sacrifice was slain. It bore his people's sins. He was made sin in their stead. And the sword of God's justice, a flaming sword which turned every way, came down upon his son. It came down upon his son, for you cannot come unto the tree of life, you cannot bring life except that flaming sword which turns every way, exacts justice upon the sin which had been committed. So Christ, nailed to that tree, placed himself under the wrath of God. God took that flaming sword and drove it into his son and slew his own son. And the son offered himself up freely and his blood was shed and his blood washed away the sins of every one for whom he suffered. He entered, as it were, into this oracle, into the Holy of Holies, unto the mercy seat, unto these cherubims, and sprinkled his blood and said, It is finished. And salvation was wrought, not by the works of man, not by the righteousness of man, not by the wisdom or the will of man, but by the grace of God, who for a people who would not, who could not, he went to this place where they could not enter. He went to the cherubims. He went past the flaming sword. He died for those who were dead, that in him the dead might live. And having cried out, it is finished, he was taken from the tree and laid in a grave, sealed with a stone, buried, the sins of his people to be seen no more. And on the third day, early in the morning on the third day, 
the temple, as it were, having been destroyed, rose up, rebuilt in Christ. He rose from the grave. He rose from the dead victorious. And the disciples came seeking him and found the stone rolled away and found in the grave that Christ was not there. Mary came, as we read in John 20, unto the sepulchre, but Mary stood without at the sepulchre weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre and see if two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. She came unto him and there in the tomb she found instead two angels of which these two cherubims in the oracle were figures. There where Christ had been the angels were. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Has the Lord brought you where he brought Mary? Has he brought you to the cross to see his son offered up? in your stead? Has he led you to the grave? Has he brought you to that place where Jesus laid? Have you seen two angels? One sat at the head and one sat at the foot. Have you seen the cherubims and their wings across the mercy seat? In the Holy of Holies where only one could enter? Have you seen where the high priest entered on your behalf, have you seen that he's finished the work? Have you seen that he's no longer there? He's no longer in the grave. He died, but now he's risen. He died, but now he's alive. Have you seen him? Have you heard his voice? Has he called out unto you by name? Mary, have you turned? And seen your risen Saviour, who entered in on your behalf. Have you seen his salvation? We read of these things in Hebrews. The first covenant had ordinances of divine service in a worldly sanctuary. There was a tabernacle made. The first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread which is called the sanctuary, and after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly, 
Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause is he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. This has Christ entered in to this tabernacle for you. All that Solomon built in that seven years, so perfectly according to the command of God, was but a picture, but a glorious picture of that which Christ would work for his people. Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then he must often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Christ entered once. He entered into the reality of which that temple was but a picture. He entered into the reality of which the Holy of Holies was but a picture. He entered into that place of death, which was depicted by the altar. He took his own blood and sprinkled it upon the mercy seat. He took that sword that turned every way, and it was plunged into him. He died that sinners should live. Oh, has God come unto you with the light 
of his gospel. With the knowledge of his salvation, has he opened that window and started to shine into your heart? Do you know that Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many? He accomplished the work. He did what he purposed to do. It came to pass. It's not left to chance. It's not left for you to perfect. It's not left up unto us. If we but will, it's not left for our decision. He came to save his people. He offered himself. He saved everyone for whom he laid down his life. And in the preaching of his gospel, he will cause them, one by one, to hear, to see, and to believe. He will go about throughout this earth where the stones of his temple are scattered. He will pick those stones up and build them up. He will put narrow windows in the walls and shine the light into the hearts of his own and cause them to see and cause them to hear as he come unto you and caused you to see and to hear of the one who gave himself for sinners like us. Are you one wretched sinner, lost in the darkness, for whom God has shown mercy? Oh, may he not leave us to our own understanding, our own wisdom, our own way. May he not leave us like those Jews of old, who he came unto, and they despised and rejected him. May when the gospel comes our way, May we not be left to our own wisdom to turn from it and to say away with this man. But may he break us like Mary's heart was broken. May he lead us to his cross, lead us to the tomb, lead us to those two angels sat at each end. May he call our voice from behind us, Mary. And may we turn with God-given faith by the grace of God unto our Lord and Saviour and cry out, Master. Amen.